God, I thank you for uh, this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to gather with other believers um, and hopefully let your truth be spoken. Uh, give us humility in our hearts to receive what you have for us, Lord. Give us grace towards our partners, grace towards ourselves, Lord, and help us to see your truth, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Um, there's a lot more people here. I think there was a retreat uh, last time I was here. Um, so I'll kind of give you give you a quick summary of where we were and where we're going to try to go for a little bit of today. So, you know, we're looking at the Ephesians passage, which is so famous, known by so many people. And last time we took an initial look at it and realized Paul was addressing sort of three three different uh, contexts of relationships, husbands and wives. He was addressing parents and children. He was addressing um, slaves and their masters. And within this context, we see that he was commenting on abuse of power, power differentials, and framing this within the context of how are we to love? What does it really mean to be a follower of Christ? How does the church act being led by the Spirit as opposed to how the world acts being led by the flesh? Right? And what I suggested was maybe Christ was shining a new light on these situations to tell us something different. We think we know what this all means and, and maybe we don't. Maybe there's a way that we can see something new. So we talked about seeing each other in sight and mind. And then today we're moving on to intimacy. But as I was thinking about it, doing some of the research for the talks, uh, thinking about all the different atrocities that would occur back in that time. And then I was reading, again on my cell phone, uh, my CNN app about some of the most recent headlines we're facing now. We think that we've evolved so much, but these are, these are a couple of the ones that I saw. Uh, this was from earlier in October. Uh, African girl forced to marry a man 69 years her elder in Kenya. Actually, Kenya is not the worst in this sort of practice, but here we are in a culture where uh, the, the child, the female child, is a commodity. So for whatever different arrangement I've suggested, I will give you my daughter uh, for whatever you're going to give in return to me. This is happening right now. This is earlier in October. We're still in October. A few weeks ago, I saw this. Right. Uh, it reminds me of a friend that I had from Laos whose parents fled and became uh, refugees in Thailand and she was seven years old at the time and fortunately for her, her parents refused to sell her into sex slavery. Uh, she was seven. They were offered a large sum of money sitting there in a Thai refugee camp with not so much, nary a penny to their name. Thank goodness they refused. She could have been living this story. And here was another headline that I saw, uh, which again was gruesome and almost unbelievable, um, from New Delhi. Uh, here's how it reads. A, a Saudi employer, so this woman from Delhi had gone over to Saudi Arabia to work for this person. A Saudi employer chopped off the right arm of an Indian domestic worker after she complained to police that the employer was mistreating her, the woman's sister said Friday. So she gave a complaint to the police and he cut off her arm. Again, this was earlier this month. So this context that we're looking at and saying, hey, hey, Paul is commenting on the culture. I don't think this applies just to 2,000 years ago. He's saying there's something about the dynamics of how our world goes, the way that we relate to each other that is so far off base. I'm trying to shine a new light on this so that we don't commit atrocities on, on this massive scale, but also so that we don't commit atrocities in our day-to-day -day lives, in the way that we interact with each other, in the way that we love each other. He's saying there's something else here. 
And just to kind of drive this point home just a little bit further, um, you know, one of the most gruesome things that's occurring now is just the human trafficking arena, which according to reports that I've read, it's the largest growing criminal activity in the world right now. And depending on the estimates that you look at, there's between four and a half million and 20 million people that are bought and sold across the world into commercial servitude. Four and a half to 20 million, right? So this abuse of people is happening all around us. It happened back then, it's happening now, and Christ is saying, I, wa I want to say something new about this. Right? So in this context, we go back to our chapter in Ephesians, reminding ourselves of the themes that Paul has already put forth, right? Our sinfulness, the need for salvation by grace, our oneness, our unity in Christ, the call to love one another out of respect and a reflection of Christ's love and living in the Spirit. So in this context, we read these verses again. And I'll just, I'll just read them to remind us where we are. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to, to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So there's there's the first chunk. Submit. Let me get to the second chunk. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. For we are members of his body. So Christ does this for the church. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and become united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. I know we've been reflecting on these for five weeks, I think it is now. What I want to frame today, <clears throat> as we're going to move on towards the idea of, of, of intimacy here, is there's sort of two prime pieces that Paul is putting forth here. He's saying there's a need for submission and there's the need for love. There's a need for humility and there's a need for unity in the body. There's a need for surrender and there's the need for leadership. And the piece I'm going to put forth today is, what if this is a call for all of us? The, the distinction between the wife just does this, the husband just does this, maybe that's not completely accurate. Right? If you look in the whole context of what Paul is writing, he is telling us all to love one another, all of us to submit to one another, that there is a bigger picture here that he wants us to see. So I want to explore the submission piece a little bit more. I had a conversation with someone about the definition. I didn't want to be misleading about it because uh, I was saying, you know, it, it, it connotes respect. Um, you know, the definition further is this idea of willingly, willingly yielding ourselves. I'm willingly sort of, of giving way to you, you know, sort of putting myself under whatever the purpose is for you because I do want to serve. So there's that bigger piece that's there. Um, so we say, well, where can we look? Why don't we look to, to Christ and see the example? So if we look in Philippians, this idea of submission. Um, here's what he says. I'm going to move on. This is the second chapter, verse 3, and going forth a few verses. Do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others, in your relationships with one another. Again, not in your wife relationship to your husband, your husband relationship to your wife, in your relationships to one another. In general, the large principle, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or in some translations, used to your own advantage. I'm in this position, I'm going to use this to my advantage. Instead, rather, he made himself nothing. He yielded. It's God's will for me. What is the Father's will for me? By taking the very nature of a servant, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to subject my stuff to what the bigger needs are here. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we say, what does it really mean to submit? I think we follow Jesus' example. This is not about me. This is about a bigger picture. I'm willing to yield to you, not to think of my own interests, but to think of yours. So in this context, there's a call to all of us to say, here's what you do. You submit in the same way that Christ submitted to his Father. <clears throat> Second piece, what about this idea of being the head? Right. So in, in the passage in Ephesians, we have the specific uh, connotation of wives do this, even though the broader piece is everybody does this. And then to the husbands, love your wives. And he talks about no one ever hated his own body. And I think Jay had a question about that, saying yeah, some people do, but this idea that there's, there's a unity in the body and say, well, where else is that talked about in Scripture? And we look at 1 Corinthians uh, 12, verses uh, 12 through 31. I'm not going to read all of these, but <clears throat> here's how it goes, pieces of it. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, um, so it is with Christ. We are all baptized by one spirit to form one body. And it says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand and it does not belong to the body, it wouldn't stop being part of the body. And it goes on further. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head, there's that word again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. We can't do without them. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, special honor in some translations. God has put the body together, given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part part rejoices with it. So what does this mean? If we go to the metaphor of the body, here Paul is saying, hey, the body is meant to be one. So if I've said the husband is the head of the wife, and as we talked about two weeks ago, that definition of head is like the source. Less of a connotation of uh, dominance, I'm above you, you have to just follow my authority. There's, there's a piece of that in there. But this idea of, from me, I want all these things to flow to you. As from Christ, our salvation flows. Our regeneration comes. Our sanctification comes. So I am serving you in this capacity. So the idea is he's putting forth two things. Submit, act in humility, surrender. And then the parallel, I want you to act in actual love to bring about unity in the body and to truly lead by doing it this way. So he's calling us to do both of these things, not just the wife to the one or the husband to the other, uh, but all of us to each of these things. <clears throat>
I'm gonna get, this is my wife, by the way, <clears throat> Jenny. Some of you know her. When I was reflecting on those articles from my CNN app, for some reason my wife just came to mind. This is actually from a trip to the Dominican Republic, and uh, her mom used to own some property there. And fortunately, one of these Christmases, I convinced her mom that just Ginny and I could go and use it, which was a whole lot better, like a little second honeymoon for us. <clears throat> and they had this extensive staff that used to work there. There were four different uh, uh, ladies uh, who were cooks, and they cleaned, and they took care of all the linens and all this kind of stuff. They had like two gardeners and security guard and all these people that served in this capacity. Um, and while we were there, my wife got this idea. So you know what? Every night when we come to eat, they prepare all this food and they bring it to us and they serve us. And you know what I'd like to do is on the last night there, I'd like to invite them to eat with us, she said. And on my side, I was very uncomfortable with this, um, mostly because I thought, who are we as these Americans, these white Americans coming in to say, oh, we're going to do this great thing for you. We're going to grace you with our presence and say, oh, you can come dine with us as if somehow this is this wonderful act that we're doing, I didn't want to be condescending. Uh, I didn't want to miss the reality of you know what their experience was. I was real hesitant, but my wife sort of insisted. And so the last uh, day, she said, hey, we, we've got three guests coming tonight, so prepare some extra food. And they did. Um, and then she called them all out, and I guess they probably figured they were going to get you know instructions about what to do and who was coming. And when they got there, my wife said, okay, you are our guests. And you could see that they were actually tremendously moved, given the history of how they'd been treated in some other capacities. And I was really surprised by it. I was touched by it. <clears throat> but I realized it happened in a context. This didn't just appear out of the blue because my wife said, why don't you come eat with us? This is actually a picture taken, I don't know, two or three days before then, where my wife said, hey, let's make this banana cream pie together. I think it is. And so they went shopping. And they did all this together, and she said, here's what I know from uh, one of her relatives used to make this recipe, and then they kind of added in some stuff. And so what I realized, there was an intimacy that was already present before the invitation. There was a, there was a connection that was already there. I, I didn't have. Right? I was doing other things while she was doing this. And so there's this piece of how do we, how do we correct for all these atrocities that are there in our own personal lives. Obviously, there are massive things we can do on a global scale. But what if a big part of this, as we're talking about today, is what if, what if intimacy, deeply knowing people, acts as a piece that sets this free? What if this is the piece that, in connection with this idea of submission and humility and surrender, also connects in with the idea of unity and love and leadership from the context of actually deeply knowing people? And what if that's part of what Paul is calling us to? And again, with the, with the thing we've been working on, Christ is shining a new light on this. He's showing us something different. It is not just about these specific codes. It is about something that is much larger to that, than that and bringing us towards what real intimacy is going to be. Um, so, on to the topic of intimacy and what this means for us in our present lives. Right. So remember, we talked about last time... Um, the themes within our own lives of seeing each other, number one, we actually do not perceive things accurately. Our own perceptions alter what we see in our world. But number two, we think we see things accurately, so you can't convince me that I'm wrong in this because our perception is our perception, so we stay stuck. And we stay in our gridlocks. Right? 
So Christ is shining a new light and says, I want to show you something different. And here's how it connects with intimacy this morning. I think there are two big questions that flow from the passage that we're saying, what does this mean for us? Number one, what do we need to submit to in order to actually really be intimate? What do we need to submit to to really be intimate? And then number two, how do we actually need to love to truly be intimate? What do we need to submit to? How do we actually need to love? <clears throat> now, you say the word intimacy, and it brings up lots of connotations. For most people, the immediate piece is, oh, they think, they're talking about sex, right? You know, is there much intimacy in the marriage? How's the sexual relationship going? But we're going to frame it within a larger context. And <clears throat> in light of that, um, I'll let you into some reading that one of my clients turned me on to. Anybody ever read this book, The Rosie Project? That was a New York Times bestseller. So in this book, there's this professor named uh, Don Tillman over in Australia. And he's actually, uh, the best parallel to him would be, oh boy, we skipped this whole piece. Let's go back to this for a second. Don Tillman's on time up. Um, <clears throat> he's a professor. He'll, he'll wait for us. Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with this painting, right? Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. All right, so you've got... You've got the father here embracing the prodigal son who's returned from all of his wild living and come to his senses. And you've got the elder son over here on the distance. Um, here's why I wanted to come back to this. I think there's a real beauty in this. I, I first got this from reading Henry Nouwen's book, Return of the Prodigal Son, which is about him going over and staring at this picture for like a week at a time and hearing God speak to him about what this actually means. There's this really interesting piece that he brings up because obviously Rembrandt, I would say is a pretty good painter, right? He's not a novice where you go, well, he messed that up and that was just an accident, but there's probably an intentionality to what he's painting. And you see the broad picture here, and then you look a little bit closer at, at the hands. And I brought it in even closer right here. And he highlights, look at the difference between these hands. Actually, it's a little blurry down there. You may be able to see it better with this one. On this one hand, you've got this sort of masculine looking hand. It looks like it's got a, a wide girth to it. Right, like he could grip a football with that or you know, turn a wrench really hard or do something. It's powerful. It's like very comforting to have that strength there. And then you've got these fingers over here which are, seem to be a little bit thinner, right? a little more feminine, right? like a gentle touch laying on the back of his back, of his back there. And Rembrandt perhaps was saying, you know what, there's two different sides that we're each called to. There are two different sides that the Father is showing us. Here's our strength. Here's our leadership. Here's how we're actively loving in these powerful sort of ways. Here's our surrender. Here's our submission. Here's our humility. Again, what if the call is to say, this is not just, I wanted a wife to do a wifely thing. I wanted a husband to do a husbandly thing. I'm actually calling all of you to love in this capacity. To have the intimacy with those who are close to you in this way that brings two sides together. And perhaps Rembrandt's painting is a beautiful reminder of that. So keep in mind the image of those two hands, right? Here's our submission, our humility. Here's how we're being subservient, thinking as a servant. And here's how we're loving actively and leading and bringing about unity. So keep that peace in mind as we return back now to our hero. So you know this guy, Sheldon Cooper, right? Anybody ever watched The Big Bang uh, Theory, right? So uh, he is this brilliant professor 
who also has Asperger's syndrome. Right? And actually, this book is kind of a parallel to this. This is a brilliant professor who also suffers from Asperger's syndrome. But in this book, he decides, you know what? I'm getting to be in my 30s, close to 40. I think I better find a wife. So he starts this thing he calls the Wife Project. And being a good Asperger guy, he has a very structured way of going about doing this. So what does he do? He's a scientist, so he creates a questionnaire in which he's decided upon all the qualities that would be important for him and a spouse. And he consults with some of his colleagues. He's actually only got really two real friends at this university and go, how do I do this? And they think about all the things that are important to him. So he wants someone who's a non-drinker and edits that to maybe a social drinker. He doesn't want someone who's a vegetarian, much less a vegan. That's going to mess up his own gustatory pleasures. Right? He doesn't want someone who can't follow a schedule. He creates this list and sends it out and magically actually gets some responses to this whole thing. <clears throat> he sounds like a real winner, doesn't he? <laughs> he could be your Valentine's gift instead of me. <clears throat> and what happens, sort of a, a freakish arrangement of things, is there's this woman, Rosie, you know, the eponymous hero of the book here from the Rosie Project, who sort of stumbles into his office and he thinks that she's a respondent to his questionnaire. <laughs> So he just says, okay, let's do dinner tomorrow night. And she's just taken aback and says, okay. All right. So they go to dinner and he quickly ascertains that she is not at all what matches the criteria that he's laid out because she's a smoker and she's a drinker and there's a million other things that just aren't quite right. So he quickly says, you know what? This is, this is not going to be, this is not going to be the woman for me. Right? And so at that point, the whole wife project kind of grinds grinds to a halt. Right. Actually, skip ahead. Let's see. One slide. Yeah, there's Sheldon Cooper actually in a mating ritual of his own. Um, <clears throat> and I thought about this in the context of, okay, we're, we're trying to be intimate. Here's Professor Don Tillman in this book trying to find a way to be intimate in, in his style. What if we do something similar? What if there's a way that he had this blueprint for how this was going to be? What kind of partner he really needed? What was going to work? And he was subjecting people to this. What if we do our own version of this? Right? So in a way, we, we've all been familiar with blueprints, right? Here's one. This is Iron Man, right? So if you had, you know, small children, small boys in the room, they would freak out. That's so awesome! Look how cool this is, right? Um, but what if, in a way, we've also got a blueprint ourselves about this is the man that I'm looking for. This is the wife that I'm looking for. These are actually something about like all the average measurements from back, I don't know, the 50s or something about a man and a woman, the average man and a woman. What is, this is what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm, I'm lining this up to see who you are, right? And then one more. I'm actually not going to talk about this too much. Uh, anybody know the movie? My Fair Lady, right? And what's the story? There you go, right? It's a big bet thing as, you know, a lot of those comedies sort of start from. So we're going to take this woman who's sort of this cockney straight woman and create her into something he thinks it should be. All right, so what if there's a way that we are doing this in our own lives? We are creating an image of what our spouse is supposed to be and subjecting them to it. We're creating an image of what we think we're supposed to be and then subjecting ourselves to it and creating an image of what we are as a couple supposed to be and subjecting ourselves to it. And so in the end, we've sort of got this this stencil, if you will, or this pro prototype of how this is supposed to be. And I can only view you through the prism of, of, of how well you, you line up 
with what my expectation is. And if it's just a little bit off, well, then I'm trying to, I'm trying to get you to be this other thing. On the flip side, if, here's my expectation of myself. And if this is not just right, maybe there is that self-rejection. Maybe there is that hating of your own body, hating of your own self that occurs. And maybe in doing this, we're blind. Because this piece isn't submitted. This piece isn't surrendered. I'm stuck in this. And as I thought about this, it reminded me of this TV show that I've actually only seen like a clip of. But um, anybody ever seen this show? Do you know this one? Yeah, I, I had to look at it. Jay knows it. Because Jay, you know, highbrow sort of TV that he watches. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's, it's a, I had to look it up. Because I couldn't it's called Hole in the Wall, right? If you, if you don't know the premise, they put these people out there in these, you know, very flattering bodysuits, um, which will be available after the talk for purchase if you want. And, and they essentially have this huge, like, wall with this little cutout in it that is going to be approaching them the entire time. And they've got to contort their body into whatever shape is in the wall so that they can actually let it pass by. And if they don't, uh, this is actually a nice pool of water that they will be knocked into if they don't quite um, line up. <laughs> you can see the immense pleasure on this woman's face. <clears throat> as she participates in this game show, right? I was thinking about this. <laughs> yes, she does, doesn't she, right? Um, and it's kind of what struck me is that how often in our lives are we are we living this out? Right? That this, this wall that's coming towards us uh, becomes a standard. And if our spouse doesn't line up with it, in some way, we're shoving them into this pool of water. Right? Not literally. Um, but maybe they're sitting there with this anguish inside about, am I going to be able to line up with this thing that you're wanting? Do you really see me or do you see what you're expecting me to be? Maybe we're doing the same thing to ourselves. And I, just let, I mean, the dread, the confusion look. How in the heck did I get into this place? Why did I sign up for this? Which is a common experience in every marriage. Hold on, this doesn't work. This does not work. And even actually more tragic and, and funny as well. <coughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Here's the sexual part of the talk. Um, but we find ourselves in these contorted positions with each other. Right? We've expected something of our partners, we've expected something of ourselves, and we expect something of us as a couple. Why are we not happy like the Joneses are? Why don't we have a more romantic life? Why does this not seem to go well for us? And we're trying to adapt ourselves and contort and get in all these positions, even together, to go, can we, can we slide into this? Or is this wall of expectation going to shove us into this water? And what if we're walking that way? What if we're living that way? That we're constantly sort of at the mercy of this blueprint for how things are supposed to be. And we get lost. <coughs> Which leads us back to the first part of these two pieces. How do we submit? What do we need to submit to in order to be intimate? The second one being, how do we need to love? And what if this? What if Christ is calling and said, I want you to submit everything. I want you to submit the blueprint that you have for how this is supposed to be. You actually want to be intimate, but you got to see who this person is. If you have this expectation they've got to fit within, you're seeing this contorted version of their identity. That's part of them there, but it's not really who they are. And you've missed it. You've missed it. 
I want you to surrender your needs. I want you to surrender the demands that you have for how this is supposed to be. Which takes me back to the Rembrandt. And here's a close-up of the elder brother. <clears throat> now one talks about this in his book. If you look at it, he's sort of stoically off at the distance. And remember the idea of the hands of the father, right? This, this sort of masculine hand with this wide, you know, expanse, and the more feminine hand, right? The love, the humility, the surrender, the tenderness, the strength in loving, the leadership on this side. And we look over at, maybe this is an example of what we do. We look at the hands of the elder brother. And look, one of them's kind of illuminated. One of them is very dark. <clears throat> and the one that's illuminated is almost sort of like, partly, you see the thumb out. It's almost like wanting to reach out in this moment. I see my younger brother coming and part of me would kind of like to go and hug him, touch him, meet him where he is. But this other part of me is, is holding back. Why? Because I have this expectation. I've worked for you all these years. And where's the fattened calf for me? Where's the party for me? I've been the good one. I've done this right. In my self-righteousness, I'm holding back the possibility that I could actually reach out to you in the midst of your humility, in the midst of your vulnerability. Right? So the contrast of the combined hands of the Father with the humility and the love the unity there to go with the submission. And then here, the restraint of the hand that has its own system for how things should be. <clears throat> its own blueprint for how this should go. And isn't able to break set and is sitting there off at the distance. And what if there's a way that we're doing this? Right? We're this elder brother. I have my expectation. I'm comparing you to this expectation. And by doing that, I'm missing it. What do I need to submit to? I need to submit to a different way of doing life. I need to submit to this idea of humility, of myself being a servant, seeing someone else as they really are, not withholding what I have because you don't line up to the image. And thinking about this, I thought about the real positive aspects of doing this. <coughs> um, anybody watch Modern Family out there? We used to watch, we don't watch so much now. But there's this episode in which they're about to do this family portrait, right? And as you can imagine, it's a situation comedy, so it doesn't go well. And they're all dressed in their nice white outfits, and it's going to be this, you know, beautiful pose thing, and they're going, wow, what a beautiful family you have. And what ends up happening is <clears throat> this massive mud fight, right? Someone knocks into somebody, they get mud on them, they're upset, they throw it on them, and they end up just splattering each other with mud everywhere. And then they take the picture look at this and you see what? You see laughter. You see connection. Right? You see an allowing of, hey, this experience is not what we thought it would be. But we're finding the beauty in it. Right? Yes, our clothes are messed up. Yes, we're going to have to do a lot of laundry later on. But here we are together in the midst of the ugliness, the midst of the brokenness. I'm allowing you, I'm allowing us to be what we are, dysfunctional in some of our ways, but loved in the midst of this. There's the unity. Also made me think of a client of mine. <coughs> uh, worked with her and her husband for a while and she was describing one of her experiences and trying to form some great family nights together. And so she was going to do <coughs> crepe night, you know, sort of expose them to, have you done this before? <coughs> yes, okay, yeah, right. 
And so apparently, I, I, I don't know this, but there's a certain way you're supposed to make a crepe, right? And so the idea was make the crepe, and it's all dainty and Frenchy and stuff like that. And then you have like whatever the, the lingonberries and all this stuff on top, right? But as she was doing this with her husband and the kids, and she's just trying to create this experience, this is going to be awesome. So she said the kids didn't want to make crepes so much as like crepe burritos, you know? And like stuff all this, th all this stuff in there and wrap it up. And she was in this moment of being so frustrated, like, you're not doing this right. We're making crepes, you know? Um, and she realized that she lost the entire moment because she had this blueprint about, here's how crepe night goes. We're going to get this right. And you're going to go, wow, this is so cool. And I'm exposed to another culture. And she realized I was missing the chance just to laugh and joke and let it be what it is. So we ended up framing this, you know, a way of her allowing herself to have Mexican crepe night. <coughs> And maybe that's part of what we're doing, looking for our own Mexican crepe nights, blending, hey, it should be this, I think it should, I expect it to be this, it ought to be, okay, but it's not. And maybe there's beauty in this. Maybe there's connection within this, and it transcends what all the expectations were coming in, but I allow this to be. I allowed us to get messy and say, this is us. I allowed us to have Mexican crepe night. <coughs> made me think of my daughter, this is Sophie, who's now three. <coughs> and yeah, we've taken some like formal pictures and all that kind of stuff that you pay $7,000 for. Um, and then you don't get the proofs. Um, <coughs> but these are like actually selfies. Like apparently I have this talent. Like I can like be wrestling with my daughter and take a picture of this at the same time. And what I love this is because I think this is us. I think this is us. I mean, I'm tickling her on the bed. So here we are laughing. Right? And there's imperfection in this. I mean, if you can see closely, it's my, my daughter is a burgeoning vampire, as you can tell, <coughs> which I'm quite proud of. Um, but here we are. Okay, this is just me. I'm a little goofy, so I'm sticking my tongue out. And there she is with daddy sticking her tongue out too. Right? And here I'm making this goofy sort of grimace face, and she's making her own sort of little child female version of this. And I go, well, this, this was intimacy. This was allowing the moment to be. I'm not wearing a particularly nice shirt. She's in her pajamas. It's probably like the end of the day and she's still in her pajamas instead of being dressed. And in the moment of it, we had this great time. We allowed it to be what it is. <coughs> Let me tell you the other side of this too. The, the sad part of this. Not about my daughter, but just, just in general. Um, we're wired for intimacy. We're wired for connection. We'll probably talk a lot about that on the, on the marriage retreat. And when it's not there, it's profoundly sad. Profoundly sad. And it reminded me of an experience I had. <clears throat> it's not about marriage. This is back when I was in seventh grade. And there was this exchange program. I grew up in New Orleans. There was an exchange program between uh, New Orleans and I think it was Nashville, Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. It was in Tennessee. So they had come to our place and spent a week. And then we went to their place. So like you were paired up with, with somebody bunch of guys and girls and I was a stupid little kid and I had this girlfriend that was there and so on this trip I was like hanging out with my girlfriend and I missed out on developing the connections with these guys to this day I, I can have some I'm a little bit of a cheesy guy I can cry thinking about it because I remember at the end of the Tennessee experience everybody was sort of like hugging each other slapping their back oh man I'm gonna miss you that was awesome hey and go on this and I was sort of there but I'd kind of been cordoned off and I was spending this time with my girlfriend instead of investing 
And I remember the moment where it's like the guy's going through and one of the guys like, you know, shaking everybody's hand and came to me and it was like, oh, you're not going to miss anybody. You didn't really get to know anybody. In that moment, I sort of, you know, <laughs> you know, grin, what, what do you say in that? Because I knew it was true. I felt this profound sadness, like, I did this wrong. I missed out on all of this because I had something else that was my priority and I didn't allow this just to be what it was. Whatever these connections were, I wasn't part of that. I wasn't intimate there. It made me think about the experience that so many of us have, a wife longing for meaningful connection with her husband. Will you write a card for me instead of giving me a Hallmark card this year? Will you sit and talk with me? Will you slow down and listen and understand? Or a husband, will you see my intentions? That I'm here for you, that even when I mess up, I'm trying so hard and so difficult that you don't see that part of me. There's a pain that's there. In a short time, here's what I want to highlight. We, We don't see this part either. Why do we cling to these substitutes? Why do we demand, I want to have more sex with you? Why do we demand, I need more flowers, I need more help around the house? Those are important things. But maybe it's because there's this real profound sadness when I don't know that we're actually truly connected and intimate. And it hurts so much, we don't know what to do with it. So we turn to our substitute, become this for me instead. But what if we could see there is that profound sadness going on underneath and we can drop our blueprint. Let me take you here real quickly. The second part, right? The first part, what do we need to submit to? We need to submit to this different plan. Our blueprint is messed up, it doesn't work. Let go of these expectations. Stop pushing this wall with a cardboard cutout of what you're supposed to be towards your partner, yourself, the marriage. Allow it to be what it is. Enjoy your Mexican crepe night. And the second, how do we love in order to be intimate? What if it's about understanding the sadness your partner has, the fear that they may have, that deep need for connection, that I see this person as someone who is longing, actually, to be close to me, longing to be intimate, yearning for a connection with God, yearning for a connection with me, and in our brokenness, not quite sure how to get there. And quickly, back to our hero in the story, Don Tillman, the Asperger's guy. What happens is he writes her off, but then he realizes that she doesn't know who her biological father is. Oh, he's a geneticist, by the way. So he goes, I know what I can do. I'll help figure out who your father is. So go like around Australia and then they fly over to the United States because there's some potential fathers over there and they surreptitiously, surreptitiously take DNA samples so he can go bring them back to the lab and see if, if this person is a, is a match. But what ends up happening as he lives for this other purpose, instead of analyzing, do you fit the criteria that I want you to fit, they get into this life mission together and he realizes, I really enjoyed this person. He starts to see her for who she is. And even in his Asperger's way, realizes, oh my gosh, I I love this person. So the wife project was scrapped. It became the father project. And then it became the Rosie project, which he realized was about him allowing himself to see her for what she was, instead of putting this stencil up and go, no, you you don't match. And so what if Christ is telling us, this is what I have for you, to combine submission and love, Combine humility and unity. Combine surrender and leadership. And in that way, to actually have intimacy. I know I took all the time. I guess there's one minute for a question if there is one.
No, I think I think it's I think it's great. Uh, large topic, of course. I mean, I would say primarily there's the distancing factor <coughs> there through social media, right? If I'm sitting face to face with you, I'm less likely to bully you, less likely to say these difficult th or these troublesome things because I experience like the intimacy of the moment. Whereas in social media, I'm so many levels removed that I can say all these things. I can kind of be a different person than who I am. Um, I think there can be positive aspects of it in terms of, so you can get on Facebook and a lot of you probably have connected with old friends because of that, which is good, but it's not going to take the place of actually being face to face. I could talk probably for an hour on it, but I mean, it's a fantastic question. It's a fant I think it's a double-edged sword. Double-edged sword in so many ways. books out there which are really good the five love languages find out what your partner's love language is and do it you know seven habits of highly effective people whatever it is these are good but they're all just ways of saying what's at the heart right? what's at the heart do I really feel intimate with you do I really know you have I received the gospel am I living this way and then actions are going to flow through from that but the idea that you're going to just choose the action and it's going to be all good it's not going to happen right? the transformation of the heart is what does it Uh, God, we just thank you for your word, and um, uh, of course, I ask just whatever I've put out there would just be filtered through your truth, so whatever is chaff would be blown away, and whatever is truth would sink down inside, but thank you that we are deeply loved by you, you showed us how to be humble, you showed us how to have unity, give us the courage to do that, to see things at a deep level, to be intimate with you and each other, in Christ's name, amen.